Thank you, Ben. Colton Arand. Colton's growing up. He's turning into a man. As soon as you don't recognize who that is, that's Colton. Thank you guys for that. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. And so if you're visiting with us, we have a children's church service for the first through third graders. You can pick them up right out these doors right after the, uh, the worship service. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We still find ourselves this morning in the prologue to the Gospel of John. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And then we're going to read down through verse 13. Our text for the morning is found in verses 12 and 13. John chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 1. God records for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Gracious God, we ask you this morning to pull back the veil that we might see your truth, that we might come to a greater understanding of the new birth. In your name we pray, amen. Adoption is an incredible event. May 13th, 2022, in Kosciuszko County, Superior Court Room Number 1, Judge Karen McGrath presided over the adoption of a little girl named Summer Smithberger. Summer is a part of our church uh, and school family. Their family doesn't go to church here, but Summer is in second grade. Her teacher, Lisa Manaki, and Pastor Matt decided that it would be a blessing to Summer and their family if they would take the entire second grade class to witness the adoption, to celebrate the event. And so in that day, as, as far as I understand from the testimony of both the judge and the lawyers, it was the only time during an adoption that an entire school class had taken a field trip to witness Summer's adoption. Sorry, I get a little bit emotional, but sweet girl. Prior to her adoption, she'd been in five foster homes in just two years. The entire class got to gather and witness and celebrate this incredible moment where Kevin and Susan made a choice they did not have to make, but they did. They made it out of love, and they chose Summer. And as soon as that gavel dropped, from what I understand, they even let Summer drop the gavel that day. And from the time that that gavel dropped for the rest of Summer's life, she will be a Smithburger. Her identity was changed that day. Her legal identity. Her DNA did not change, 
But her legal identity, from that point forward, she will always be legally known and cannot be changed again that she is a Smithburger. She was adopted into that family. She was claimed by those parents. And out of love, those parents made a choice to bring her into their family. And once that's done legally, it can never be undone. As we heard from Pastor Matt just a couple weeks ago, the testimony of his family adopting and then becoming a, a legal heir that can never be left out of the inheritance. Adoption is a beautiful thing. And what we find in verses 12 and 13 is we find a beautiful picture of spiritual adoption. The main idea of this passage is found in verse 12. The end of verse 12. That God gives the right to some people to be counted as his children. That in the courtroom of heaven, God takes a sinner and by his rightful, loving choice, places his gaze on that sinner, brings them into the courtroom of heaven and and, and brings down the gavel and says, that one belongs to me forever and ever. They're my child. And verses 12 and 13, as once again, John is just giving us this amazing prologue that is building the foundation for everything that he's going to show us in this gospel. He's unfolding for us these, these big concepts. And he's saying, you need to understand this in order to understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means for you. And so in these two verses, he gives us this beautiful picture of spiritual adoption. He does this in two ways, just two points this morning. He shows us the nature of this adoption, and he shows us the means by which this adoption is accomplished. And so we'll look at each one of these individually, and for those of us that are Christians, we'll be encouraged and thrust into worship through recognizing what God has done for you and for me. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can see the beautiful adoption that's available to you if you come to Christ in faith. Let's first look at the nature of the spiritual adoption that God offers us. We find it in the second half of verse 12. It's the the central statement that this sentence in 12 and 13 revolves around. But he gave the right to become children of God. First of all, we need to understand that this adoption is a gift. It doesn't say that he awarded this as a result of something that was earned, but rather as a result of his free mercy and grace, God gives the gift of adoption. This adoption cannot be earned. This is not a status that you secure by being good enough or by accomplishing something great in your life. It is a gift that is given by God. Adoptions are not cheap. And there's no way that you can ask a young child, maybe abandoned or not being able to take care of by his family, or maybe even orphaned, to pay the thousands of dollars in legal fees that adoption costs. It cannot be earned. It's a gift. And this adoption cannot be paid for. It not only cannot be earned, it can't be paid for because no matter how much money you have on this earth, you can't bribe God into being his child. This adoption is given by God, but he gave. What did he give? It's an authority. An authority. Perhaps some of your translations may have the word power there, which is an also a great translation of this word exousia, this, this authority, this right. There are really two words in Scripture that we see, two main words that we see to carry this concept of power or authority. One of them is the word where we get our word dynamite from, dunamis, dynamite. It's used in the New Testament. And some people misunderstand this power as saying, just as dynamite is explosive, so this power is explosive. And that's not really the concept that's being 
communicated by, by that word. The word dunamis, power, means power that exists as a result of the nature of something. In other words, if you were to take a fuse and to put it into a hole in a rock and were to light that fuse, no matter how far you ran or how much you wanted that rock to explode, a piece of granite is never going to explode because that's not what it is. By nature, it's just rock. But if you were to put that same fuse in a stick of dynamite and you were to light it, that dynamite will explode because of the nature of what it is. You could say a king has power by nature of his position. He is a king. He has the right to rule by nature of being a king. And yet the king can send out a messenger and that messenger can carry authority, but it's not the messenger's authority. It's the authority of the king given to the messenger. You see that? If you were stuck on an island all by yourself to try to survive, a a stack of $100 bills would be no good to you other than to try to start a fire. Right? Because they, that, that, that piece of cotton, that piece of linen, carries no value other than the value that the government places upon it. And so we have two different words for power or authority. One is one that is, that, that is given by nature of the object, dynamite. It blows up because of what it is. And then you have exousia, which is, which is the authority that's given from another. It's the messenger who goes and reads an announcement from the king and someone says, what right do you have to tell me that? And he says, I don't, but this comes with the authority of the king because the king wrote it and it's the king's announcement. And this word here in scripture that God has given the right means that God has given you authority, but not based on how good you are, but based on how good he is. That you carry the very authority of God, that he's given you this authority, not based on your nature, but based on his nature. And you say, Pastor Joe, what kind of authority is this? Well, we see it explained a little bit later on in John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, where, where Jesus says the Father has life in himself. He's granted the Son to have life in himself. He's given him, the Son, all authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. He's saying the authority that I carry is the authority of the Father. And in salvation... God gives authority, a legal right for you to be what? He's the perfect judge given to a a child of God. And the first type of authority, the kind of authority that he gives you is an authority to change. I want you to notice the word become. He gave the right to become. It assumes that you were different before. It stands in contrast to the verbiage that we've seen John using in regards to God in statements of being. That God is, but man is becoming. This is a change. It's not a change in God. It's a change in us. And so it's the authority for a human being to become. Meaning that what God is giving you is not inherent to the human condition. You need to change. God gives you the authority for something in you to change. To be transformed. In order for you to be a child of God, something in you must change. It must become. And become what? Well, it's a change in status that you become a child of God. And this is in contrast to every unbeliever. Ephesians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has not worked, and the sons of disobedience, talking about everyone who is not a genuine Christian, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath. So scripture says that 
that because Adam sinned, he passed down something to all of us. Adam and Eve passed down their sin nature. You said, that's not fair. Well, that's just the way it is. You receive certain characteristics from your parents. For me, I look just like my mom. This past weekend, we had the privilege of attending a funeral uh, for Ron Hamilton down in South Carolina, and I attended it with my mom, who I look very much like, and we met somebody who we had not seen in a long time. In fact, embarrassingly enough, we met somebody who kept me in the nursery uh, when I was a child, and so I asked for her forgiveness for all my behavior uh, as a child, and then she looked at me and she said, you can't deny that you're Gretchen's son because you look just like her, right? And this is a blessing. And some of you look just like your parents, and you don't have a choice about that. You don't have a choice about your hair color or whether it's curly or straight or whether it's on your head or somewhere else, you know? You don't have a choice about how tall you're going to be or or the way that you walk. You get that from your parents. Just like you've received traits from your parents, so you have received traits from your spiritual parents of Adam and Eve, and they have passed on their sin nature. And so thus, when you were born, you were born in your nature as a child of wrath. And you may have had someone tell you that everybody in the world, we're all just children of God. And friends, that is not true. That all of us are born enemies of God, by nature children of wrath. And in order for us to be counted as children of God, we must become something else. We must change. This change in status is a transformation of your nature and a removal from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That word transferred means transformed. It means that you are taken from sin and placed in righteousness because that is who you have become. It is a statement of change. God, through adoption into his family, gives the authority for some people to rightfully claim the status of being a child of God. Not because I have any sort of inherent right to be God's child, but because some other authority has announced me or proclaimed, right, or pronounced That I am God's child. The heavenly gavel has given the decision. Not because of anything that is inherent to my person, but because the decision has been made on the authority of someone else. That as a Christian, I am a child of God. That's the nature of this adoption. But this group is not everyone. All people are not given the status of being a child of God. And so we have to ask the question, what is the means by which a person becomes a child of God? That you were born a child of wrath and you must become a child of God. How does that happen? You can say the first part, the first point is about the what. What is spiritual adoption? It's being declared on someone else's authority that you have been changed to become God's child. And the second question we need to ask is how does that declaration happen? What is the means by which spiritual adoption is accomplished? And so that's where we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning. Means of this adoption. It begins at the beginning of verse 12 in the first statement, but to all who did receive him. And so the first aspect of this adoption, the means by which this is accomplished, is that God's children have received him truthfully. They've received him truthfully. 
John is giving this statement as a contrast to verse 11. If you look back in verse 11, he came to his own, he came to the Jewish nation, and his own people did not receive him. That the world did not know him. If you remember from last week, the world is enveloped and blinded by this darkness. And and Jesus came presenting himself to the Jewish nation. And in God's sovereignty and God's plan, the Jewish nation rejected Jesus. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But the implication is even though his own did not receive him, others did. Others did. Even though Jesus' own people, the Jewish nation, had the best opportunity, you could say. You see, some were even his own family, even his brothers, his half-brothers. The sons of Mary and Joseph did not believe until after the resurrection. Some were the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish nation, who would lead the spiritual activities of the Jewish nation. Some were the Pharisees. They, as a whole, rejected Christ. Some were the scribes. Those were tasked with knowing the Old Testament law in order to explain it accurately to the people. And they as a whole rejected Christ. And I think this gives us even a better understanding, or we could say maybe a better example, of the darkness that covers the unsaved world. That it's not the fact, as we said last week, that they don't know the truth. Or they don't have access to the truth as a whole. But that they they are suppressing the truth. That, That the light that pierces the darkness is not just information or argumentation. It's not just a convincing of the mind. It has to be a supernatural awakening of the soul. So even though these... Jesus' own knew the scriptures and they knew Jesus. They were still in darkness. That God's children have received Him truthfully. I want you to notice that this is a universal call of the gospel to all. That the gospel call is a universal call with a specific audience. That John here is signaling that the message of the Messiah is now available to more than just Jews. No longer do Gentiles need to assimilate into the Jewish nation and go through the Levitical priesthood in order to worship Messiah and have access to God. That it's not just limited to the Jews. That all, no matter their nationality, who came to Jesus, it's it's an open gospel call without distinction. That access to God is now through Jesus alone. And all of those people who received this one word, John John introduces the concept that he's going to unfold through the rest of the gospel of what genuine faith looks like. That genuine faith is not a faith that believes more than another type of faith, but genuine faith is is a faith that's in the correct object. Because here's here's the problem that, that we often come to is that when we talk about faith and we talk about genuine faith or, or true faith, you may have in your mind, well, genuine faith is a faith that believes a little bit more than false faith. Like someone's false faith falls short and they didn't quite believe enough. But genuine faith is a faith that goes all the way and believes all the way. But what John wants you to see in his identification of Jesus is that either you have faith or you don't. Either you believe it or you don't. It's not a matter of how much faith you have. It's a matter about whether or not the faith that you do have is in the right object. And so John is identifying Jesus and saying, you must receive the Son of God correctly identified as your King and as your Savior. You see, this is pictured for us in the triumphal entry of Christ where the Jewish nation as a whole in Jerusalem received Jesus gladly. Do you remember the triumphal entry where Jesus is riding in on a donkey and they're throwing down their jackets and they're throwing down palm leaves and they're waving palm leaves 
welcoming their conquering king. And what are they saying? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, save us, save us. That's what they're saying. But the problem is they've identified Jesus incorrectly because they were saying, save us from the Romans. Sit on the physical king. Stop our suffering. Save us from Caesar. And so as they say, save us, save us, save us, it's almost as though Jesus in his mercy is saying salvation is available, but not the salvation you're looking for because they misrepresent, they misidentified Jesus as a king, meaning a a political conquering king. And when Jesus identified himself as a king to save them from their sins, they then rejected him. And they crucified him because the same crowd that said, save us, save us, save us, just a few short days later said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, because he turned out to be different than what they wanted. And so John is is unfolding the beginning of this concept of true faith that you have to accept to receive Jesus as who the Bible says that he is, not a Jesus of your own imagination. And it's interesting that this word received is actually tying back up to verse 5. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we talked about how that word has a broad sense of not grasping onto Jesus, not holding on to Jesus. And so John here is making a, a, a contrast and saying there are some, the darkness, the unsaved, have not held on to Jesus, but to all who do hold on to Jesus, but to all who did receive him. The darkness did not understand the gospel, did not grasp the gospel, but others did. The Jewish nation missed it, but some got it. This receiving is an acceptance of who Jesus says he is. I also want you to notice that this verb has an inherently passive meaning. It doesn't say whoever takes It says, whoever receives. And so this is not you in your effort going out and seeking after Jesus because no one seeks after God unless God first draws him. It's a receiving of the truth that the Holy Spirit is revealing to your heart. Jesus has done the work Jesus is doing the offering. God the Father is, when I say offering, I don't mean offering a sacrifice on the cross. I mean doing the offering of the gift of salvation. The the one act of redemption is completed. And so the Father is drawing. And this gospel, this good news that you can be saved from your sin is offered to you. And your responsibility is not to work for it, but to simply passively receive the truth. It's receiving of the gift he gave, you receive. He gave the right, you receive. This receiving is a one-time past event. It's given in the past tense to show you this was a one-time action. This is not an ongoing present action that you need to receive Christ every day. Truly those, as we'll see in a minute, who have received will continue to believe, but this concept of receiving every time it's mentioned in Scripture is a one-time past event in which God reveals the truth to you and you receive the truth as God has given it. It's a grasping, an understanding, an embracing Some interesting notes about this. This receiving of Jesus is also receiving the Father. Remember we talked about in our, in our Trinitarian discussion that no one act is just one act of one person of the Trinity, but it's the act of the Trinity of the whole. And so Mark, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40 says, whoever receives me, Jesus says, receives him who sent me. There's no separate action between receiving Jesus and receiving God. 
Receiving Jesus, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, changes your life. As you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Established in the faith. And this receiving includes something that we would call repentance. We live in a very Catholic area, and so we need to be careful not to equate repentance and and what the Roman church, the Roman Catholics would call penance. Very similar phrasing, two very different concepts. Because when people think of repentance as, oh, I have to feel sorry and do some work because I'm repenting, that's the Roman mindset, Roman Catholic mindset of penance. This concept that we see in Scripture of repentance given to us in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, metanoia, repent and believe the gospel. What he's saying is change your mind. Turn in your heart. You are going after sin. Turn and pursue God. It's not just a turning because I can be I can be going to my sin and then I can turn and go to some other sin, right? And it's definitely not a 360 degree turn where I'm going after my sin and I just turn for show and I end up going the same direction. This concept of repentance is to say, in, 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 my, in my, my concept of faith, I believed that my works would gain merit with God. That somehow the righteousness that gets me into heaven is a righteousness that I'm earning. And all of a sudden, I have that light bulb moment where I understand salvation is by faith alone. It's that light bulb mindset turn. It's that change of heart, that change of mind that results in a change of direction. And so this receiving is to say, I've been trying to receive the things of this world to find salvation, and they've come up empty. And so now I receive Christ. It is an implication that you are turning to Jesus, because biblical repentance is not turning from your sin in the sense that you don't sin anymore. It is turning to Christ. And as a result of turning to Christ, your back is now towards your sin. And so this receiving includes that concept of repentance. God's children have received him truly, meaning the true object of who Jesus is. Secondly, God's children have believed on him fully. Believed on him fully. Verse 12 to all who did receive him. And then this is a parenthetical statement that kind of gives us a facet of what that reception looks like. Receiving by faith, believed on him fully, meaning that he is the total object of your faith. You're not coming to salvation with a mindset of Jesus plus. It's not Jesus and It's Jesus all or not Jesus at all. When John gives this second statement there in verse 12, who believed on his name, he's not introducing a totally separate act from receiving. It it should be viewed more as fully explaining what receiving him looks like. And, And I think this is important for us to understand because often we can see salvation as maybe a three or four step process, right? Like in order to be saved, there's this and then 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 you're saved. But the, the moment of, of justification, what we would call being saved, being forgiven of your sins, it's all wrapped up in one moment. You could say that receiving and believing are two sides of that same coin. That those who received are the ones who are believing in his name. It's not as though you receive Jesus and then at a later time you believe Jesus. 
It's one event, one justification, one salvation. This receiving is recognizing the object correctly, receiving Christ in that same instance, believing in the true Jesus, embracing him as your king. You see, because without receiving him, you don't have the correct object. And without believing him, you only have intellectual knowledge. So it has to be both. It's not as though Jesus simply exists as a statement of fact, but that he must be your king. He must be your rescuer. You must come to him in faith, full and true faith. This concept of belief is huge throughout the Gospel of John. Once again, going back to our purpose statement that we've referenced in every message, John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this, these ideas of receiving and believing are used interchangeably. It's not like in John 20, 31, he's saying, well, here you don't need receiving, you just need believing. And then later, uh, you know, in, in John 5, you don't need believing, you just need receiving. They're so tied together that you can use them interchangeably to speak of the same event. And friends, this is very important. Because your salvation, your moment when you are declared to be adopted by God, when you are declared righteous before God, that is not a process. That is a moment in time. Your sanctification, your growth in becoming more like Christ and representing Christ better and and saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus, that growth is a process. But the concept of salvation, justification, is a moment in time when that has happened. Notice what he says that they are believing in as he's unfolding this concept of receiving. He says, those who believe what in his name. And he's not using the the name of Jesus here like some sort of magic spell. Like, I'm going to to pray Jesus over you. And as long as I say the name Jesus, everything's going to be okay. Or, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm praying this, and, and we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna, uh, whatever. We're, we're just gonna say Jesus five times, and the more we say it, the more it's true. This believing in the name of Jesus in the biblical, con- the biblical time period, it really spoke of the entire being and character of the person you know today names are chosen because they sound nice or because you have a certain affinity to them and names change with generations the type of names that are uh, that, that that people name their kids and it's funny because the generation before always makes fun of the next generation for what they name their kids and it just goes in a cycle you know now older names from two or three generations before me are now becoming popular again right Nothing new, just keep doing what you're doing for long enough, and eventually you'll be cool again, right? And so, and so these names are coming back, but for a while, you know, people were, were, were naming their child names that they liked, but the previous generation was like, why, why would you name them that? That's silly. Why not just name them, you know, John or, or whatever? Because in our culture, <clears throat> names, names, I, I wasn't, if you're named John, that wasn't a negative to you. My name is Joe, okay? That's about as generic as you can get. But, um... But, but names for us are more given because we like the way they sound or maybe it flows well with a surname or, or whatever, right? Maybe it's tied to family. Maybe there's someone in the Bible that, that you looked at that you appreciate so you're going to name your child that. But in Bible times, it was very different. In fact, often, I shouldn't say often, we're given four examples in Scripture. There were more than likely many more where people's names were actually changed because their character, their nature had been changed. Some of you know these. Abraham, you know, and that meant boss or big guy. To, I'm sorry, Abram, boss, the guy at the top. To Abraham, which means father of many. And so he became the father of the multitude, God's children. Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Peter, Jesus gives Peter another name. 
His name was Simon. And then he says, no, we're not going to call you Simon anymore. We're going to call you Peter because you're like a rock. Petros is the word rock. And then in Matthew 16, 18, we have that. You are, you are Petros, and on this Petros, I'll build my church. You are Peter, and on this rock, I'll build my church. And so Jesus here changes Peter's name, what we call him, in order to show his character. And so we have John here saying that, that whoever's believed on his name, the character, the nature, the entire person of Jesus, what it means to be Jesus, what it means to be God. And we have this referenced and explained for us in Philippians chapter 2, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Many of you know this kenosis passage, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And because he humbled himself, therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name of Lord. Master, Lord. He is king, he is ruler, he is God, he is worthy of your life. Everything that it means to be God is found in the person of Jesus. So believing in the name is not just believing in a historical figure. It's embracing everything that Jesus says is true about himself. And so you ask the question, well, Pastor Joe, are you saying that I need to know everything about Jesus in order to be saved? I mean, if I have to receive and believe in the name, and the name means everything that it means to be Jesus, do I have to know everything about Jesus in order to be saved? And the answer is no. You don't have to know everything about Jesus. You have to identify him correctly as God. As Messiah, as Savior. But what identifies those who have identified Jesus correctly is that as you learn more about Jesus, you continue to believe. That you continue to identify and believe Jesus correctly. Lastly, God's children not only received him, believed on him, but have been born of him spiritually. Look at verse 13 who were born, those who believed, those who received, those who have been identified as children of God, adopted into God's family, have been born. And then he gives four statements, clarifying statements about how this happens. God's children have been spiritually, according to use Peter's verbiage in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Born again. God's children have been spiritually born again. And just to make sure that you're not confused about how this happened, there are four statements that are going to clarify for us what the new birth is, what it means to be born again. If you'd like a theological term, it's the term regeneration. Regeneration what it means to be born again. Now, there's some debate as to what these three phrases mean. I'm going to give you uh, my opinion as to what I believe John is going, out, going at here. The three phrases, uh, look down at verse 13. He gives uh, three knots, or two knots and a nor. Not of blood, uh, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man. One knot, two nors, right? Three knots there. Some would say that this is talking about um, physical birth and blood, uh, born of the flesh would be the desire of uh, the intimate desire between a married couple to have a baby and nor of the will of man would be the desire of the father to produce an heir it's a common viewpoint there uh, that could be true as I've read through this and meditate on this though I don't think that's what John's getting at because as you see this concept of the new birth constantly referenced in the teachings of John, there are always some questions that go along with it that John addresses. And I think that if we look at John's treatments of the new birth, we see his reasoning for giving these three statements, and I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to rephrase them to give them to, give them to you and, and to tell you, I think, what John is getting at here. And the first knot of blood would be John saying, this is not because of your lineage. You are born into God's family, and it has nothing to do with who your parents are. But Pastor Joe, my parents were founding members at Community Baptist Church. That's great. 
I'd love to talk to you about the history of the church, but that has zero bearing on whether or not you've been born again. Pastor Joe, my, my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they all were pastors. That's a great heritage, but it has nothing to do with whether or not you've been born again. Pastor Joe, I don't even, I don't even know my parents. I was given up as a child. I've tried to locate my birth parents, and I, and, and I haven't been able to locate them. Friend, that has no bearing on your rebirth. Because in the moment of rebirth, God gives you a new lineage. And so I believe what John is saying here is that it's not of blood lineage. Where else do we see that in John's teaching? Well, in John chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to read it later, John chapter 8, verses 40, uh, 39 to 47, we see this interesting interaction between Jesus and the Jews when he's explaining this concept of faith and they need salvation by grace through faith. And the Jews' response is, well, wait a minute, Abraham is our father. I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm better than someone else. I, I have a preferred lineage to God than someone else. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of what your father did. Oh, your father's not Abraham. You're sinning. And then there's this little twist that they take a jab at Jesus, and we'll, we'll get to this passage later on, but they says we were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, Jesus, we're not the one who was born without a father. You were. You were conceived by Mary. We saw her come back to Nazareth before she was wed to Joseph, and it was obvious she was with child. We weren't born of sexual immorality. Don't talk to me, Jesus, about bloodlines. We're children of Abraham. We've got, as we'd say where I was raised down south, we've got good stock on both sides. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord. And he goes down, and later he says, you are of your father, the devil. Because they made the mistake of saying, this lineage is important to God. Friend, your, your background, whether you come from the best background in the world or you come from the worst broken home that anybody could ever imagine, it has no bearing on your new birth. We all have to come to Christ by faith. That Jesus does not prefer one lineage over another, one family background over another, one race over another. That all come to Christ by faith. It's not by blood. It's not by blood. And you may have been a member here at Community, and this may be clicking to you, for you for the first time. That it's not about who your family is. It's about whether or not you embrace Jesus by faith. Secondly, it's not by the will of the flesh. This would be his statement, not of works. The new birth cannot come about by means of what you do on this earth. You cannot accomplish enough works on this earth to rebirth yourself. Your, your birth into Jesus' family, this rebirth, is not through your lineage and it's not through your effort. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of the, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's the new birth there, as we'll see in a minute. Whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus. It's not of works that you've done. Your best on your best day is worth nothing to God. Not because the will of the flesh and then the third one strikes right at home for many of us. Not of the will of man. This means not of personal desire. Maybe you have struggled with the assurance of your salvation and you have been wrongly counseled by someone and they said, well, when you prayed, did you really mean it? I don't know. How am I supposed to know if I meant it? I think I meant it. Was I distracted? I mean... I, many of you know, if you've talked to me, I struggle with staying focused sometimes. You know, and I can have the attention span. It's been better since I've gotten off social media and limited my, my technology intake. My attention span's grown, but it's still not very long, right? 
And when I sit down to pray, if you're like me and I sit down to pray, my mind's going a hundred different directions and I actually keep a pad beside me so as things come up, I can write it down and go back to praying. If you've never tried that, you need to try it. And so you're like, did you really mean it? I don't know. Well, then maybe just pray again and really mean it this time. Well, how do I mean it more? Do I squeeze harder? Right? Do I get down on my knees? Is that enough? Do I lay flat? Is that enough? Am I low enough? How do, you, how do you mean it more? I mean, there's obviously a way that you can fake something. But I believe what John is getting at here is the concept in Romans and Philippians that even your desires are given to you by God. Listen to Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart, desire, and prayer for God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they have a lot of great desires, but it's the wrong desires. Or Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both, you know this verse, both to will and to do. It is God who changes your desires. And so what John wants you to see here is it's not about you meaning it enough. Either you believe or you don't. It's not about just squeezing. I mean, my testimony, friends, is that from the time that I was probably nine years old to 12 or 13, I was racked by doubts in the assurance of my salvation. And I remember very vividly as a nine-year-old in the middle of the night sitting on the floor of the bathroom with my back to the cabinet and crying and saying, God, if I'm not safe, save me now. If I'm not safe, save me now. If I'm not safe, save me now. Because I just thought I had to mean it enough. And the question was only, did, did, I, real, did I mean it enough? And friends, that is exactly what our blinded friends of the Roman Catholic Church are doing. Am I doing enough works? Am I doing enough works? Am I, it's never enough. Versus saying, Jesus, the desire and the faith for salvation is even given by you. That he holds me fast. And it's not about you meaning it enough. It's about the object of your faith and if the object is strong enough. Kids, listen carefully. If you're climbing a tree, I'm not saying you should, talk to your parents, but if you're climbing a tree and there's a little, little, teeny, tiny branch and you just know that branch is going to hold you. It doesn't have any leaves on it. It's dead as a hammer. It's as big around as a pencil. And you're climbing a tree and you say, I know that branch will hold. I know it will. I know it will. And you put your foot on it, what's going to happen? It's going to break, won't it? Because it doesn't matter about how much faith you have in that branch. It's going to break every time. But kids, listen carefully. If you have a little bit of faith in a big branch that's alive and it's solid and you place that little bit of faith on that rock-solid object, it's going to hold every time. Because your salvation is is about your faith being in the right object. And who has faith like the grain of a mustard seed can move mountains? Why? Because their faith is so big? No. Because their object of their faith is infinitely strong. It's not about how much you mean it. Either you come in faith or you don't. And then we get to this beautiful phrase, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of God, not of the will of man, but of God. This new birth only comes through God breathing life into your soul. I don't want to preach John chapter 3. First of all, because we don't have time. Secondly, because we're going to get to it in a few short weeks. But John chapter 3, there's this amazing story of a man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and says, how do I see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you can't unless you're born again. 
And Nicodemus just is like, well, what am I supposed to do? Get, crawl back up into my mother's womb and be born again to see the kingdom of God? And he's like, no. You have to be born of water, but you also have to be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, well, how does that happen? In the passage, there's a whole section that's often skipped in John chapter 3 where Jesus says, the wind blows where it will. In other words, God acts as he sees fit. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the only way that you will be saved is for God to breathe life into your soul. The Christian message could be the most foolish thing to your ears this morning. You look around and you go, man, this is a bunch of weird people worshiping uh, a weird truth. And the only way that you would see Jesus for who he is and receive and believe him as your Lord and Savior is for God to breathe life into your soul. That your heart of stone will become a heart of flesh. And that's what we pray. That your heart of stone will become a heart of flesh so that you can receive Jesus and be birthed into his family. Because without that, you are of your father, the devil, John chapter 8, and the works of your father you must do. And friend, God has created a terrible place called hell for eternal punishment for Satan, his demons, and those who die in the grips of sin will spend eternity in hell. But those who die as children of God will spend eternity with their father. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit will breathe life into your soul. And if you're here and you feel God drawing, maybe that should be your prayer. God, give me life. Help me understand. What's our response to this? Our response for the believer of this adoption is just total thankfulness and worship. God, you've counted me as your child. You've rebirthed me into your family. That in heaven, I no longer have a judge. I have a father who's waiting to receive me into his arms. I'm adopted into God's family. I have a new family lineage. And for some of you, that's a huge answer to prayer, isn't it? I mean, I've got all sorts of people in my family line that I don't want to be associated with. A lot I do. I'm not talking about my mom and my dad. I love them to death, right? Happy to be a part of that family. But you go back far enough in your family tree, you're going to find someone that you're like, I, don't, I just want to hide that person, right? Or maybe you don't know your family lineage, but as a Christian, you've got a new one. Then he's your father. And you know what that means? That means we're all brothers and sisters. And that means we have a shared love and a shared unity around our new family that we've been adopted by our Father, rebirthed, received Him. That's our response. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, what is your response? Your response is to call out to God in faith, receive Him. In that moment, life is breathed into your heart. You embrace Jesus by faith. You believe on who he is and you are called a child of God. And then from that point on, friend, everything changes. Amen. You don't need to change yourself to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and after that, everything changes. Right. You don't even have the life to live in righteousness, but you have it once the very life of God is present in your heart. And if you're not a Christian, that's what you need. To embrace Jesus by faith and to have the life of God fused into you. Heart of flesh, receiving, believing Jesus for who he is. As many as received him who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture and we thank you so much that we can look around us and see this beautiful illustration that you've given to us of adoption and how you use that to explain your love that you have for your children. And so as your children this morning, we bask in your love and we thank you.
for adopting us into your family. And we pray that if there's one here who's not a Christian, that you would breathe life into their soul, that you would save them, that they would embrace you by faith, that they would believe, receive, that they would turn to you as their only hope and source of life. And may we go about today thanking you, praising you, what you've done.